Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today we'll be discussing Ratcatcher, starring William Eady, Leanne Mullen, Mandy Matthews, and Tommy Flanagan. Directed by Lynn Ramsey. Hi, and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. My name is Gally, coming from Glasgow. And this is Devlin, and I'm in London. Today we're doing something slightly different. We are launching a new series whereby we look at those films that are fallen out of the public consciousness that we feel deserve reappraising and new audiences should maybe give them a give them a try. And today we're going to be looking at your pick, Devlin, which is Lynn Ramsey's Ratcatcher from 1999. Why? Why Ratcatcher? I kind of thought it would be perfect to talk about in this series. There's just something very special uh, about Ratcatcher. It's it's just it's always stayed with me. I remember I came across this. I think it would have been 2003. Uh, I was living in Darlington back home, and I was working at Music Zone. And I was also in the middle of a very heavy Terence Malick fixation. I was sort of hoovering up any information I could about him. And it was around the time that Terence Malick had um, sort of reemerged from his uh, hiatus. You see, he disappeared for 20 years after Days of Heaven and then came back with the Thin Red Line. And then by sort of 2000, by 2002, 2003, there was, there was quite a lot of filmmakers who were sort of breaking through with first or second features that were bearing the, the hallmarks of a, of a, a heavy influence of his. Ratcatcher was just something that was referenced. I assume I just read the, the DVD review. I picked this DVD up, uh, took it home, and I uh, thought I'd, I'd watch it with my dad because um, it's a film that's set in Glasgow and a Glasgow housing estate in the early 1970s. And my dad was brought up in the Gorbals, which I'm sure you know the area. I do, yep. So my dad was never really a big film guy. We watched films together at home, but... If we went to the cinema, for example, my dad would take me and my brother on the bus and just drop us off. And then he would disappear for a couple of hours and then he would come pick us up. So uh, I, I was it was really surprising, even that that late, to see him kind of genuinely react to to a film like this. Like he was um he was really kind of a little shaken by it. I think it really sort of stuck with him and we ended up talking about it quite a lot. So uh yeah, and also I know that um, I've spoken to you about it over the years, probably many, many, many times. And I thought this was the ideal opportunity to literally force you to watch it. Yeah, it's true. Um, I think you've recommended this since well, probably day two of our friendship. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's go 15 years. So, Devlin, why don't you give us the plot to Ratcatcher? Sure. The film centers on James, a sensitive young boy on the cusp of adolescence, trying to navigate the rubbish-strewn streets of an East Glasgow housing estate in the dustman strike ravaged 1973. Uh, Wrecked with a level of guilt he is emotionally unprepared for after the death of a friend, he seeks an escape from his impoverished surroundings that seems impossible to achieve. We're going to try and avoid spoilers, but we will signpost when we get into spoiler territory later on in the episode but for now we're just going to talk about the the opening 
We have an opening shot of a child wrapped up in a curtain, almost ghostly, quite haunting. It's in slow motion. And immediately, Ramsey is signifying one of the big, big themes in this film, which is death, I guess. And what I love about it is how one of the other themes in the film is sort of a loss of innocence. Uh, Our characters... As they go through the story, James, our main character, his innocence is being eroded and he's almost in a, like a dreamlike state, just as a child would be. And then reality snaps in into play. And that's exactly what happens in the opening shot. It's, it's diegetic sound, but it's diegetic sound being used in a really strange way. So you have a, the sound of children laughing, mm-hmm. but obviously recorded from elsewhere, edited over the top of it. You have um, that kind of ominous white noise sort of filling the rest of the soundtrack um and like you say that kid is is almost got like a burial shroud yeah for his face and and then the reverie is broken immediately when his mother walks in and slaps him around the side of the head <laughs> that gulf between the the way the kids uh and the parents act and the way they interact between uh the the two generations is is another one that just runs all the way through it like a lot of films like this, the plot, it's not an A to B to C story. It's not a story where, where things are signposted and paid off and, and every character's motivations are super clear. But you can also tell that this is a really tight screenplay. I, I, I really feel like it's, um, it's a really economically written film. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And also really economically shot. It's actually important to state, so Lynn Ramsey... At this point in her career, this is a debut feature films. And how old was she? Twenty nine, I think. She was, yeah, I think she was twenty nine or thirty when when it was released, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, this particular film is dealing with some quite heavy themes, and she manages to tell a very very intimate and personal story in such a unique way. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about the images. I'm talking about a use of sound. I'm talking about her, the way that she frames the characters. So she comes from a photography background. And I think that really does tell because I think if you pause the film at any moment in its runtime, you're going to get a beautifully composed frame. There's never really a, a camera setup which you could identify as a standard this is your established and then we cut into this mid and we cut into this mid. I don't think she's shooting for coverage, which is why I think like when I say that it's economically shot, it's um, so I mentioned before the Terrence Malick, the reason why I, I even heard about this film in the first place was this, a reviewer must have name checked Terrence Malick as a, as a reference. But I think his influence has now become so diffuse that it's almost meaningless like you're basically now talking about perfume ad aesthetic. You could also argue that few people have done more to diminish the reputation of Terence Malick than Terence Malick with his last couple of films. Yeah, and that, and that that's a whole different show, isn't it? The way he handled images so kind of poetically, and the way he put stuff together in really unusual ways, it meant that filmmakers that didn't have much money. Uh, could still create a sense of kind of, I don't know, I don't want to sound like a total wanker, but poetry. And this is a real generalization. But whenever we talk about British films, in comparison to our 
cousins across the pond tends to be labeled that they're they're not cinematic as in they're mm. a bit televisual that is so not true of Ratcatcher. yes it's set in glasgow yes it's got that grimy 70s i mean the the film itself is bleak yeah it's very dark it is visually visually dark it's um every scene seems to be completely overcast and the interiors are all really kind of gloomy you see all these uh tenement block flats the light is always sharp and filtered through uh neck curtains and again as we've said you currently live in glasgow so i'm sure you're well aware more than most about <laughs> what percentage of days are overcast up there oh, absolutely yeah i think on on first glance when you hear the story when you know when it was made when you know where it's set you're gonna put it together with that sort of very dour social realist usually usually very well-meaning films but you know they, they feel like homework you know they feel like oatmeal like you have to slog through them because it's for the greater good and they're important but i i don't think that's that's the case with this film that's why i keep coming back to it is that every time you're in a domestic space you're not kind of crammed in there and listening to people yell over each other it's all explored with this sense of kind of intimacy but also mystery i don't know it's um well you know what i think it is devlin so james our main character he's, he's very inquisitive very observational doesn't really speak that much he's constantly watching observing and looking at the other characters within the film and in a way he we assimilate with him and the way that ramsey frames the action it's almost voyeuristic like at points, yes, at yeah. points we're distant, and then she'll, we'll then go to a, a real close up where we get nothing but face or hands or feet, and mm. there's a constant dichotomy between the two where we're either really really far away observing, or we're really close, and then we're looking for those those little touches within the performances, and I think that again it it all points towards this very very cine literate way of telling this quite simple story but my god does it have a, a real impact and that's why yeah. i don't think it's fair to categorize this as just a social realist film because you said it before and it does sound a little bit sort of pompous but there is a poetry there's a kind of hypnotic quality the film sort of sucks you in despite the bleakness it's uh yeah it's it's not it's not prettified but it's still compelling to look at and it's compelling because it feels so authentic not only the production design you know the hairstyles the costuming and just the general look of the film but the performances because normally the rule of thumb is you know don't <laughs> don't work with uh, children and animals well we've got mm-hmm. loads of child actors most of which are not actors they're just yep. kids kids pulled from the street and Ramsey one of which manages... is I, i'm not sure if that's her daughter or her niece or uh, the little girl the youngest yeah the youngest yeah who, she's fantastic in the film which is just mm. great all the performances in the film feel really naturalistic and and you know so there's so there's very little dialogue so most of our emoting and most of our connections are going to be coming from expressions yeah you know, we don't get big long uh expositional scenes or anything like that we yeah. just get like i said of almost um because it was like a period in the 40s and 50s in the uk where in british cinema docu-realism films and i 
would categorize Ramsey's work into that as opposed to say purely social realists like a nil by mouth uh, right, right. or or even like a Kaz. Broadly, this comes under a coming of age story. Yes. Um, and as we said, the most overriding feeling that it has is one of loss and and death, literal and, and metaphorical. So we have our, uh, our, our lead character of James. And again, this isn't really a spoiler. One of his friends uh, drowns in the canal uh, behind the tenement block. But it's a, it's a bit of a repeated trope. The, um, the coming of age story kicked off by an accidental drowning. I was thinking uh, just in the couple of years around this film, like uh, that's the plot of, of George Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the plot of um, The Return. Do you ever see The Return? No, I'm not seeing Which that. Which is um, uh, a Russian film by uh, Andrei Zviganitsev, um, which I would also recommend. It's another debut feature. Uh, mean Creek. It's an American indie. Uh, a rash of these films came came across the same the same story setup. It's not what you'd call like a uh, an educational plot. No, and it's not life affirming either. It, we've said it before. Everything in the film feels like it's got purpose and meaning. There isn't mm. a shot or a scene or a character that doesn't carry some form of significance within the within the story. One of the themes, the other themes in the film that. I wanted to talk about was a crisis in masculinity. Industry in the UK is on the decline. I'm talking more about those northern towns that we're both from. These strong male characters are now sort of at a loss because they don't have any value in mm. in the family dynamic. And we have another one here in James's father, who's played by Tommy Flanagan, which most people will recognise from. Braveheart, and I think he was also in the bloody god awful Alien vs Predator. Uh, he's, That's true, he's, but he was in Face Off. So he was in Face Off, yeah. And I think he's in Glad- he was in Gladiator as well. I think he was uh, Russell Crowe's yeah. uh, servant in that. And he's very, very distinct actor. He's got genuine scars from a, a Glasgow bar brawl, uh, and and his character within the story, James's father, he's got no job because the decline well, in the shipping industry. He's looking what's, for work. What's strange is that, um, yeah, you do hear him say um, he comes back uh, one day with a, with a tin of paint and, um, and he says they were throwing this away at work. But then there are other times when you just don't. So, yeah, it feels like um, partially employed. Well, to, and to me, that the significance of that paint was he just wanted to do something. Oh, that's how I saw it anyway. Yeah. It? He was yeah, like, yeah, listen, I'll paint it. It also has some significance with them looking to be rehoused within the film. Mm-hmm. But I took it as, you know, he's just desperately seeking some form of value within the family. So yeah, and one of the things outside of just him seeking some form of value with the paint is during the story, he gets anointed as a, as a local hero. But that's at odds with how he's mainly portrayed, which is almost our antagonist. Um, you know, he's used as a butt of a joke in one particular scene, which is very funny. And he's also seen basically physically abusing the mother in the family. He's kind of completely emasculated because he's got no job. He's drinking too much. Kind of is at odds with his position. But the younger daughter, James's sister, still sees him as this, you know, as 
the big dad. Whereas James has, has kind of awoke to the idea that, you know what, you're, you're not a hero and he just can't connect with him throughout the whole film. And I just think that is paralleled in so many different films within the 90s. I mean, The Four Monty is the greatest uh, example of it. You know, they literally have to bear all in a working men's club to find some purpose. So when we mentioned like social realist cinema, British social realist cinema specifically, uh, it, it kind of has, like you say, it had its roots in the kind of post-war cinema and then it kind of developed. And then by the late 50s, you sort of had the archetype of the the social realist kitchen sink drama, stuff like uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning. Yep. Um, yeah. And then kind of throughout the rest of the 60s and into the 70s, you had um, the emergence of Ken Loach. And you would also, I guess, say some of Mike Lee's work as well would fall you, into it. You mentioned as well, we've got a tradition for it in British cinema. And it's not just in cinema because we, you know, was it Coronation Street was what, 60s? In the 60s, yeah. Kind of spun, it's kind of spun out of this. Okay, so now we're going to just talk about a couple of, uh, couple of scenes that we both wanted to discuss so i will signpost spoiler warning so for those of you that don't want these scenes and some of the the major story beats uh spoilt then i would respectfully ask you to pause go watch the film come back and then hear what we've got to say so one of the scenes that i really wanted to talk about because i think it might be my favorite scene in the film james has got a friend called kenny who has got learning difficulties and he almost represents in as as a part of James his his creativity and his kind of blissful ignorance to some of the harsh realities of the world you know one of the one of the lovely bits of interplay is that James will tell Kenny something and Kenny will just believe it straight away and one of the things is uh Kenny's got this like RSPCA badge and that immediately, in his mind, makes him a member of the RSPCA. And he's just found this badge in the bin, probably. So he's that kind of character. And uh, he, uh, he keeps getting given, basically, pet rats and mice that obviously uh, populate the, the bins in the, in the gardens of these tenements. Mm. And his parents keep giving them to him. And he keeps thinking, oh, I've got a new pet today. So it's his birthday. He get, receives a pet mouse. Oh, it's um, in a cage and everything. Got, I, yeah, he gets a cage. Yeah, so it is. It is a genuine pet. He's not just sort of walking around with it. And he's got a balloon attached to the cage. And I've got to say, Devlin, I don't think I've been this worked up in a scene for some time. Yeah, I was. I was filled with dread. But yeah, we've we've had this uh, this gang this gang of of Neds established i understand what you mean when you say that you're uh that you were tense during this sequence because as we said all the the dialogue is so kind of naturalistic the glaswegian dialect is at play here so i've lived here now for four years so i didn't need subtitles but i would probably suggest if you've not got an ear for the glaswegian accent uh you'll probably require subtitles to be put on when watching the film Kenny's brought the the mouse down to show James and the gang immediately swarm and they just want to chuck this mouse about. And I've got to say, I was really worked up during this scene. Well, let me see it. Yeah. 
Oh, come on, you're one of the boys. Am I James? Ah, so is James. He's oh. a man of the muckers. Makes me sound like that, right? Yeah. Yep. This is probably my favourite favourite scene in the yeah. film. Uh, partly down to the way that Ramsey plays with my emotions. So the way that it's framed, I think I know exactly where it's going to go. Because we've seen this gang be... They're, they're pretty horrendous throughout. I mean, yeah. just think think the worst Stephen King bullies and then add, add a, a, a nice thick layer of realism on it. You think they're going to just kill the mouse. And and Kenny kind of thinks that too because he doesn't want anyone else to to hold. Uh, what's what's the mouse in it? Snowflake, isn't it? Uh, snowball. Snowball, that's it. Um, and he doesn't want anyone Snowflake else to hold is a Snowball. Yeah, <laughs> Snowflake's a dolphin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Snowball, and he doesn't want anyone else to hold it other than James. And the gang are like, no, no, come on! I thought you were one of the lads. And ah, oh, it's it's yeah. It's, so cruel and they're flinging the mouse about and then i think one of the gangs says go on james throw it against the wall yeah kill it he doesn't he then puts it he says you know what yeah the mouse has flown enough and then <laughs> they talked about throwing him to the moon well that's what uh that's what james says he says uh i'm gonna i want him to i want him to i want him to fly to the moon kenny takes that literally attaches snowball to the the balloon and he floats away. And we have this wonderful musical reference to Terence Malick's Badlands. The music's composed by Carl Orff. You may have you may have heard it in uh, True Romance. Hans Zimmer did a did a reimagining of that music, and it's played over the basically it's played throughout True Romance as well. It's a wonderful piece of music, and it's a very very literal uh, visual metaphor of the mouse going to the moon kind of what james wants to do which is escape this place but it also could be uh significant as far as maybe going to heaven aesthetic and this is the first time that we drift into something 
like fantasy. Well, not something like fantasy. It's a flower fantasy sequence. I do feel like it's also really important in the narrative in order to set up the ending, in order for that ending to be seen as possibly ambiguous so that the, the conclusion isn't just a, a very literal depressing ending which is where a lot of these films just end up heading to the fact that it maintains a, a sort of again it maintains that lyricism all the way up until the very end and it, it maintains a, a a sort of dream logic and an ambiguity i think you, you need this one little break with the with the sort of harsh realities that the film's set up to this point uh, in order for that to happen. Otherwise, I think that ending would have felt um, possibly out of place or a little jarring. It's kind of good how she leaves that open-ended for you. And like you said, that setup is is done in this moment of levity mm. in what is quite a bleak film. So you kind of need it. And it also releases the tension from that scene whereby you basically panicked for a mouse. Yeah. Well, like you were saying about the, the bullies, it's... Um... The bullies, much like everything else, is so much more terrifying for its sort of believability and casual cruelty. I think that's oh, that's yeah. one thing that that comes across. It's like these kids aren't, you know, villains. They're just bored. They're yeah. aggressive. They're in a kind of no hope situation. And it, like when you were saying that, that everything in the screenplay has a, a purpose, it feels like these kids because James starts to tag along with them a little later in the film. And these kids represent a path that he could go down. And that path is, is one that is just without joy, unless that joy is at the expense of somebody weaker than them. Exactly. And he's, he, you can tell that James is a sensitive soul. I think he, he's in touch with his feelings and his emotions because i mean throughout the whole film he is woke like i said he looks at his dad with quite a lot of disdain and he he, he connects with margaret ann the, the storyline that he has with margaret ann is is probably it's just difficult to pass out which which part of the film is the most devastating but certainly that is his his arc with her and and the way they connect to each other and the mutual support it's it's like they have a very strange relationship in the film and it's it's almost as if they at, at times they they just look after each other because nobody else will and we don't see margaret ann's parents at all we see uh so j during the film all the kids get head lice and james steals the uh the the head lice uh shampoo and the little nick comb and he takes it over to her house and 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 then they have a a, a very I, I don't want to say strange because it it doesn't feel strange within the context of the film, which is odd. But it's a very unusual scene to have in any film, which is to have these two adolescent characters uh, climb into a bath together. It doesn't feel gross. It doesn't feel like a Larry Clark film or anything. Yeah, there's there's joy there, and it's sweet, and uh, and and Ramsey's kind of playing with playing with the, that whole sequence because they eat sandwiches together on the sofa after they have a bath mm. and when they're both naked and the, and it's almost like i think you know i i attributed it to that moment after a sex scene a normal conventional sex scene where both are, are having a cigarette it's almost like a little parody of 
domesticity, seeing the pair of them wrapped yeah, up in yeah. their towels, eating jam sandwiches and watching the telly. During the slum clearance, um, the, the high rises are being knocked down and people are being moved out of town. And the young boy who dies at the beginning of the film, his parents uh, um, escalated up the list and they are, they move out very shortly after they have to bury their son. And everyone on the estate is waiting for the council to come and bequeath them a new house. And um, we've seen James previously uh, sort of fascinated by his older sister. Like, I think she's becoming this completely different creature, and you know, an adult. And and he's he's dealing with that in really strange ways. And he kind of, he's, uh, he's forever watching her take the bus. So the bus takes on this kind of significance of, uh, of escape, of an escape into whatever. And the film has so much about escape. And, and so James steals some change from his dad and jumps on the bus and doesn't even know where the bus is going or how to take a bus. He just says, 10 people, please. Um, and so the bus driver just takes him to the end of the line. And you have this this great sequence of him taking the, you can't assume it's his first ever bus ride, but definitely his first bus ride on his own. And you hear uh, that great Nick Drake song, cello song playing over the, over the soundtrack as, the, as they move out and out and out of the city into the fields. Now, this was something that my dad used to talk about that when they were kids growing up, um, they used to do these uh, organized outings for the for the tenement kids. They would take them out of the sea just to show them a cow or a field because they didn't see it. Um, wow. Sort of, it's it's difficult to to think back to just how trapped within that estate they were, but they really were. Um, mm. Certainly, my my dad spent uh, a lot of his summers back with. So his parents are Irish, so. He spent a lot of his uh, his summers back in in Donegal with my granddad's family. So to to James as a character, he wouldn't have seen a field of of grass before. Um, and when walking around from the bus stop, he, he finds one of the estates still being built, and he's fascinated. And so he starts just kind of exploring it as a kid would, kind of stumbling across it, and he finds a bathroom. And you see him take a piss in an unplumbed toilet, which just leaks out all over the floor. But again, it's one of those things. When I was watching this with my dad, this was all the stuff that hit me. It's like, yeah, shit. He didn't have a bath. Like for his entire childhood, he didn't have a bath. I mean, he had he had a tin bath. Uh, he didn't have a toilet. He had to go downstairs to, to the bottom of the block to go to the toilet. He was one of five kids. Um, raised by a, a single mother from the age of 11 or 12. So um, it was just crazy to, to see this all portrayed and all, all to be portrayed just sort of um, with an emotional authenticity and also with, oh, a, yeah. with a physical authenticity. The whole film is just so kind of um, text, like, like textural. Like you can... It's like you can, tactile, yeah. You, you can, can feel you it. can smell the iron when she's when she's ironing the dad's clothes, and you can. Um, and so w- watching him uh, in this in this house, and then there's this huge picture window looking out over a golden cornfield, and it's like he's stepping into a uh, a frame of a painting as he runs into this field, and just throws himself around on the grass, which is just something that he never would have experienced before in his life. 
it's kind of a pivotal scene because that right there, that is the escape. That's the way out. That's what's going to end the, the, to be honest, very bleak reality of his day-to-day existence. But late in the film, when we see that everything start to fall apart even more, um, he goes back, he tries to run away back to the estate and the doors are all locked now. And he comes, he comes back to the tenement block and um, he sees Margaret Ann and she's, um, she's locked in a, in the, in the toilet cubicle by the gang. And he realizes there and then that he is completely powerless to do anything about that. Um, and I, I really feel like that's, that's the breaking point. Like that's the lowest ebb. Yeah. And it's compounded, isn't it? When, um, cause he, he kind of lashes out and tells Kenny, listen, Kenny, you killed your mouse. Yeah. Your mouse is dead. And Kenny, you know, he, he only knows how to respond one way, which is, well, I know that you killed Ryan Quinn. And then we, we literally cut to a, a shot where from above looking at James as if he was in a, a coffin uh, and then his younger sister comes and it's almost like that last embrace, isn't it? Because they have a weird interplay, but I think, you know, there's a couple of characters that you know that James really loves and one's his mother and one's his younger sister and one's Margaret Ann. And I think to some extent, Kenny as well, like he feels pity for Kenny and yeah, it, it then leads to James essentially taking the plunge. He jumps into the, the canal, doesn't he? And, commit suicide it's it's all played very um distant i i read an interview with um lynn ramsey and one of the things she said was that if the image is is powerful enough then you don't need music and if the music is is doing the work for you then you don't need to be really flashy with a with your visuals and and that end sequence where james jumps into the canal is exactly that you know there's there's no music when he jumps in Mm -hmm because it's powerful enough on its own as an image. He just literally just jumps in. I think it's James is in heaven, in his heaven, his version of heaven, which is the wheat fields outside of that new home. We see his family walking towards it. They're moving in. His younger sister's looking at a reflection of herself. And then we don't see James. And then all of a sudden... Yeah, he's he's standing way, way, way at the back. It's his family and, and a couple of friends, and they're all trooping through the field, carrying one item of furniture each, trooping through the cornfield to get to the uh, to the the new home. And I, yeah, I read it as as just this is everyone's chance for escape because of what happened with with Ryan and the fact that Ryan dying meant that his family could move on quicker. It was almost as if he could see so little hope for for his own situation that this was just. This was his way out, and it's their way out. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's right. That's how I saw it as well. And you know what I did find interesting? Might be purely coincidental. A year later, Ridley Scott releases Gladiator. Everyone's seen Gladiator. And they use the same visual metaphor of a wheat field in Gladiator that symbolizes Maximus's heaven an afterlife and it's in the it's in the opening shot of gladiator and then i did some research on it and that was all pickups 
and there was stuff that wasn't in the script and the editor uh, pushed for it because it's just a stuntman's hand washing over Wheatfield. And I just found that quite interesting. <clears throat> and I wonder if there was there was a connection there. It's probably coincidental, but it's just um, it's interesting how less than a year later after Ratcatchers released, we get a major Hollywood film that plays with the same visual metaphor. So I thought you'd find that quite interesting. It's also, um, when you said there about uh, if the image is working hard enough, you don't need the music. And if the music's working hard enough, you don't need the image. I do like how restrained the use of music is in this film, because when they use it, it is absolutely devastating. Like Rachel Portman's score, as 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 sparse as, as it is, and it really is, sometimes it's just a few notes played over a scene, but the only time she actually gets to use a, a full motif is is across this ending sequence and over the, the credits. And it's it's one of those pieces that just nails you to your chair while the credits play out. And it's it's just, it's sort of perfect. Devlin, final thoughts on Lynn Ramsey's Ratcatcher. I would I'd be interested to to hear yours because you came to this very fresh. So you've only seen it for the first time in the last week or so. So um, before I swoop in and I can only imagine ramble on for far too long about how much I love this film. Um, I'd, I'd like to hear what you what you took from it. It sounds a bit cliched. I think this is a really powerful and important film. I, I really did connect to it because the themes of guilt, of death, loss of innocence, we've all had childhoods. So you can instantly uh, connect with some of the things that Ramsey's playing with. I'm, I was just immensely impressed by Ramsey's uh, command of the camera. And in fact, all of the elements that make up Ratcatcher as a film the performances by these young actors, there's no stars here, but my God, does she get these performances out of <laughs> these these kids. And then you have a film, a feature film, a debut, and it doesn't have any of the hallmarks. We've seen many, many films from many directors and debut films where you can kind of say, well, there's an insert shot there or there's a clear shot there that's kind of covering for a mistake or a cutaway. There's none of that. Everything in the film is deliberate. Everything has got purpose and everything's got meaning. And this film, the highest compliment I can give it is it will leave its mark on you. You won't you won't watch this and then make a coffee and start talking about Thor Ragnarok. You just won't do that. You'll it will st- stay with you and and it's definitely definitely worth seeking out. Uh, so I'd highly recommend people watch Lim Ramsey's Ratcatcher. And I think if you like this I, as part of watching Ratcatcher, I watched um, You Were Never Really Here with Joaquin Phoenix, which is her latest film, which was released last year, which is currently on Amazon Prime. Go seek that out as well, because she's a fascinating filmmaker, and there aren't that many that do what she does really well. So yeah, that's that, that was my thoughts on, on Ratcatcher. Well, I'd absolutely agree. I'd absolutely agree with all of that. Um, I would say... Also, by watching the short films, all of which are available, all the short films that she made before Ratcatcher, she made three. And it's almost as if every one of them is like a demo, like a demo tape 
for the debut album, which is Ratcatcher. It's 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 like she's refining and honing every time she makes one. You see other elements come in that are that are echoed in the feature. So you see this this fascination with with water and the danger that it has. You see her um, honing her skills as a director of um, non professional actors, and and that really speaks to somebody who, as you said, has a really strong, very very strong idea of what she wants to put on screen. Yeah, I think we we spoke about it. it's it's the authenticity, the authenticity of place of setting, of character, of story, of of feeling. You can tell that this is a film that somebody not just made, but but had to make. This is something they had to get out. And that's always the kind of films that, that really, really hit you. They, they, they punch you in the gut and they stay with you because much like a, a great song, it feels like it just had to be out there. So yeah, as a as a as a film experience, yeah, you're right. It does it does leave a mark, and you don't um, you don't really walk away from it unscathed. After watching this film with my dad, he started telling us a lot more stories about what it was like growing up in Glasgow in the '70s, and um, it's a real testament to the film that he recognised it so acutely, made him more able to 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 discuss these things. Like he he talked about the Margaret Ann storyline and. and Afterwards, he was telling me what a hairy Mary was, because that was the, the the colloquialism that they used when they were kids. And I don't think um, I don't think it's a thing he would he ever would have told me if it weren't for the fact that we watched this thing together. That's why it sticks with me. It's it's the film itself, and it's also it's also just a really a really kind of interesting memory of a very strange time mm. when I had uh, when I had some some very very honest. And in some cases, quite terrifying conversations with my dad about about his wayward youth. That's good, though, isn't it? It's good, and it's it's isn't it great to have a film that connects connects people together? So yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's really wonderful, isn't it? It's quite nice. Okay, then, Devlin, I just want to say thank you for recommending Ratcatcher. I will next time you recommend a film, it won't take fifteen years for me to see. Everybody, you can find Ratcatcher on DVD. It's pretty accessible to get via amazon is currently not being streamed on any of the major streaming services no i believe every now and then it turns up on the on the bfi player and and also on movie i got my copy at hmv for six quid yeah and it does include all three of those short films that we mentioned which is um kill the day small deaths and gas man i would highly recommend that you seek it out uh, give it a watch and then let us know your thoughts on Ratcatcher. You can find us on Twitter at Rewind Movie Podcast. And you can also tweet myself directly at Galley the Greek or Devlin at Quillica. I those details. Answer. Yeah, you won't answer that. <laughs> but you can, uh, yeah. Uh, the details are in the notes for this episode. And let us know what you think of this series, our new series, where we're looking at these kind of smaller less well-known films but still uh, very very much worth seeking out and, and yeah discussing we'll say our goodbyes so it's galley in glasgow thank you for listening and it's definitely in london thank you very much and we'll catch you guys next time on the rewind movie podcast just because we're in uh, we're doing a film from a scottish director and a director from glasgow enjoy some deacon blue here we go dignity <laughs> 
Dignity. I should fall dignity.